Hi, and welcome to Sleep Tight Relax. A short message for grown-ups. If you get value from our stories, please consider subscribing to Sleep Tight Premium. It's a bit like having a library full of bedtime stories at your fingertips. Along with sleep sounds, guided meditations, and music for sleep, we help you make sleep time easier and hopefully bring joy and calm to your children. Visit sleeptightpremium.com to subscribe. A link can also be found in our show notes. Thank you. Hi, friends, and welcome to Sleep Tight Relax. Sounds, music, and stories for calming, busy minds. I am Cheryl, and I read and edit all the stories. Production and sound design is by my husband, Clark. We hope that our simple mix of relaxation techniques, sounds, and stories provide a soft place for you and your family's day. Now let me say a little about how to use this podcast. After a short relaxation exercise, I will tell you a story. You just need to follow along with the sound of my voice, and before you know it, you should be in a deep sleep. If you wake up through the night, you could listen again or think of the story that we shared. It takes time to get accustomed to focusing on something outside of yourself. But the more you try, the easier it will be. Before we continue with our story, let's first make sure you are cozy and comfortable. Turn off the lights, silence notifications, find your comfortable place, your place to relax or your favorite position in bed. Position your pillows, a teddy or your other little comforts to make sure that everything feels as it should. You have done enough for the day. It is enough. You are safe. Now all that is left is rest. Now that you are comfortable, take a slow, deep breath in through your nose and exhale through your mouth. 
Let's do that again. In. And out. And in. Great. In this episode, I am going to share part seven of the Campfire Girls. In this episode, Henrietta comes to the house to talk about her cousin. And later, the girls hear a mysterious message on their radio. I hope that you have a deep and restful sleep. Campfire Girls, Part 7 What is this? Mr. Norwood asked, staring at his eager daughter. Have I heard anything before about a girl being carried away? Why don't you remember, Daddy, about Henrietta, who lives over in Dogtown, and her cousin Bertha, and how Bertha has disappeared, and, and... And Henrietta is the champion snake finder of all this region, chuckled Mr. Norwood. I certainly have a vivid remembrance of the snakes at any rate. Dear me, cried Momsey, this is all new to me. Where are the snakes, Jessie? Gone to where both good and bad snakes go, rejoined her husband. Come, Jessie. It is evident I did not get all that you wanted to tell me the other evening. And, it seems to me, if I remember rightly, you got so excited over your radio business before you were quite through that you forgot the snakes. I mean, forgot the girl you say was run away with. Don't joke with her anymore, Robert, advised Mumsy. I can see she is in earnest. Just listen here, Daddy Norwood, Jessie cried. Perhaps you'll be glad to hear about Bertha. She is little Henrietta Haney's cousin, and Henrietta expected Bertha to come to see her where she lives with the Foley's in Dogtown. Well, the day that Bertha was expected, she didn't come. That was the day Amy and I first thought of building our radio, and when we were walking into town, we heard a girl in Dogtown Lane, so we ran in, and there was this girl being put into an automobile by two women. What girl was this? asked Mr. Norwood, quite in earnest now. A girl you and Amy knew? We had never seen her before, Daddy, and I am not positive, of course, that she was Bertha, Henrietta's cousin. But Amy and I thought it might be. And now you tell about two women who want to keep a servant girl away from you. It might be the same girl. It might indeed, admitted Mr. Norwood thoughtfully. Tell me what the two women looked like. 
describe them as well as you can. Jessie did so. She managed, even after this length of time, to remember many small things about the women who drove the big car and the fleshy one. Mr. Norwood exclaimed at last, I should not be at all surprised if that were Martha Poole and Mrs. Bothwell. The descriptions in a general way fit them, and if it is so, the girl Jessie and Amy saw is surely the maid who worked for Mrs. Poole. Oh, Robert, can it be possible, do you think? cried his wife. Not only possible, but probable, declared Robert Norwood. Jessie, I am glad that you are so observant. I want you to get the little girl from Dogtown someday soon and let me talk with her. Perhaps she can tell me something about her cousin's looks that will clinch the matter. At least she can tell me her cousin's full name, I have no doubt. It's Bertha for a first name, said Jessie eagerly, and I suppose it was Haney, like Henrietta's. The girl I am looking for is not named Haney, whatever her first name may be. Anyway, it is a chance, and I mean to get to the bottom of this if I can, Jessie. Let me see this little Henrietta who battles snakes with such admirable vigor. And he laughed. It was, however, no inconsiderable matter, as Jessie well understood. In the morning, she hurried over to the Drew house to tell Amy about it. Both had been interested from the very beginning in the mystery of the strange girl and the two women. There was something wrong with those women, Amy said this with a serious shake of her head. You could tell. And when, on further discussion, Jessie remembered their names, Poole and Bothwell, this fact brought up another discovery. Bothwell! I never did, said Amy Drew. Why, no wonder I thought she looked like somebody I knew. And she drives a fast car, I'll say she does. Jess Norwood, where were our wits? Don't you remember reading about Sadie Bothwell, whose husband was one of the first automobile builders? And she has driven in professional races and won a prize, a, a cup or something. And her picture was in the paper. That is the person Daddy refers to, Jessie agreed. I do not like her at all. Huh, I should say not, scoffed Amy. And I wasn't in love with the other woman. So, she is a racetrack follower, is she? Then Amy giggled. I guess she wouldn't follow him far afoot. She isn't so lively moving about. But where do you suppose they took Bertha if it was Henrietta's cousin we saw? I do not know. We will go down to Dogtown this afternoon and see if Mrs. Foley will let us bring Henrietta back to see Daddy. The child hasn't been up to see you at all, has she? asked Amy. Why, no. Maybe the woman won't want her to come. Afraid somebody may take little Hen away from her. 
Did you see the child's hands? They have been well used to hard work. I'll go with you and defend you if the Foley tribe attack in force. Let's go down in the canoe. At lunchtime, Nell Stanley had an errand in the neighborhood, and she dropped in at the Drew house. The three girls, Mrs. Drew being away, had a lovely little meal together. She had other news of her young brothers. Bob and Fred were enamored of the radio. They were ingenious lads. Nell said she believed they could rig a radio set with a hairpin and a mousetrap. But she was going to help them obtain a fairly good set. Only because of the shortage of funds at the parsonage, Bob and Fred would be obliged to make every part that was possible. So she drew from Jesse and from Amy all they knew about the new science. And Jessie ran across to her house and got the books she had bought dealing with radio and the installation of a set. Jessie and Amy got into their outing clothes when Nell Stanley had gone and embarked upon the lake, paddling down to the landing at Dogtown. It was not a savory place in appearance, even from the waterside. As the canoe drew near, the girls saw a wild mob of children, both boys and girls, racing toward the broken landing. Why, what are they ever doing? asked Jessie in amazement, backing with her paddle. Chasing that young one ahead, said Amy. They were all dressed most fantastically, and the child running in advance, an agile and bedraggled-looking little creature, was more in masquerade than the others. She wore an old poke bonnet and carried a crooked stick, and there seemed to be a hump upon her back. Spotted snake! Spotted snake! Miss Spotted Snake! The girls from Roselawn heard the children shrieking. What are they trying to do to that poor child? Repeated Jessie Norwood as the crowd swept down to the shore. Spotted snake! Spotted snake! Yelled the crowd and spread out to keep the pursued from running back. The humpback little figure with poke bonnet and cane was chased out upon the broken landing. She will go overboard, shrieked Jessie, and drove in her paddle again to reach the wharf. Amy, who was in the bow, steered off, but brought the side of the canoe skillfully against the rough planks. What are they doing to you, child? Amy cried. It's little Henrietta, screamed Jessie suddenly. Oh, Amy. Amy, who was strong and quick, reached over the gunwale of the canoe and seized upon the crooked figure. She bore her inboard, knocking off the old bonnet, to reveal Henrietta's freckled little face. The cloak and the hump under it were likewise torn off and went sailing away on the current. For pity's sake, Henrietta, gasped Jessie. Yes, am said the child composedly. Did you come to see me? 
Not expecting to see you in this, uh, uh, this shape, hesitated Jessie. Amy went off into a gale of laughter. She could not speak for a minute. Jessie demanded, Who are those children, Henrietta? Part Foley's, some Maguire's, two Swansons, the Costello twins, and the Montmorency Shannon, was the literal reply. What were they trying to do to you? Catch me, said Henrietta composedly. But they ain't ever done it yet. I always manage to get away. I'm cute, I am. Spotted snake, murmured the amazed Jessie. Yep, that's me, spotted snake. That's cause I'm so freckled. It's a great game. I should say it was, marveled Jessie, and immediately Amy began to laugh again. I don't see how you can, Amy, Jessie complained. I think it is really terrible. I don't mind it, said Henrietta complacently. It keeps them busy and out from under their mother's feet. But they shriek and yell so. That don't hurt them, and there's plenty of outdoors here to yell in. Where we moved from in town, folks complained of the Foley's because they made so much noise. But nobody ever complains here in Dogtown. As Amy said when she could keep from laughing, it was a great introduction to Henrietta's home. They went ashore, and Henrietta, who seemed to have a good deal of influence with the children, ordered two of the boys to watch the canoe and allow nobody to touch it. Then she proudly led the way to one of the largest and certainly the most run-down homes in Dogtown. Mrs. Foley, however, was a cheerful disappointment. She was, as Amy whispered, a bulgy person, but her calico wrapper was fairly clean, and although she sat down and took up her youngest to rock to sleep while she talked, being too busy a woman to waste any time visiting, she impressed the girls from Rose Lawn rather favorably. That child is the best young one in the world, Mrs. Foley confessed, referring to Spotted Snake. Sometimes I rant at her like a good one, but she saves me a good bit, and if ever a child earned her keep, Hen earns hers. Jessie asked about the missing cousin, Bertha. Bertha Blair? Yes, a good and capable girl. Was out at service when Hen's mother passed and left her to me. Something's wrong with Bertha, or she surely would have come here to see Hen before this. Did Bertha Blair work for a woman named Poole? Jessie asked. That I couldn't tell you, miss. But you can take Hen up to see your father like you said you want to. The child's as sharp as a steel knife. Maybe she'll think of something that will put him on the trace of Bertha. So they took Spotted Snake away with them in the canoe while the Dogtown gang shrieked farewells from the old landing. Henrietta had been dressed in a clean slip and the smartest hair ribbon she owned. But she had no shoes and stockings, those being considered unnecessary at Dogtown. 
I believe Nell could help us find something better for this child to wear, Amy observed with more thoughtfulness than she usually displayed. What do you think, Jess? Folks are always giving the Stanleys half-worn clothes for little Sally, more than Sally can ever make use of. And Hen is just about Sally Stanley's size. That might be arranged, agreed Jessie. I guess you'd like to have a new dress, wouldn't you, Henrietta? Oh my, yes, I know just what I would like, sighed Henrietta, clasping her hands. You've seen them cape suits that's come into fashion this year, ain't you? That's what I'd like. My dear, gasped Amy explosively. Don't mind going barefooted, said Henrietta, but if I could have just one dress in style. I expect you two girls wear lots of stylish things when you ain't wearing sweaters and overall pants like you did the other day. I never had anything stylish in my life. Amy burst into delighted giggles, but Jessie said, The poor little thing, there is a lot in that. How should we like to wear nothing but secondhand clothes? Hand-me-downs, giggled Amy, but mind you, a cape coat suit? Can you beat that? I saw pictures of him in a fashion book Mrs. McGuire sent for, went on Henrietta. They are awfully taking. Little Henrietta proved to be an interesting specimen for the Norwood family that evening. Mumsy took an interest in so appealing a child. Mr. Norwood confessed that he was much amused by the young visitor. A big dictionary placed in an armchair raised little Henrietta to the proper height at the Norwood dinner table. Nothing seemed to trouble or astonish the visitor, either about the food or the service and Jessie and Mumsy wondered at the really good manners the child displayed. Mrs. Foley had not wholly neglected her duty in Henrietta's case, and there seemed to be, too, a natural refinement possessed by the girl that aided her through what would have seemed a trying experience. Best of all, Henrietta could give a good description of her missing cousin. Her name was Bertha Blair, and that was the name of the girl Mr. Norwood's clerk had interviewed before she had been whisked away by Martha Poole and Sadie Bothwell. In addition, Mr. Norwood had brought home photographs of the two women, and both Jessie and Amy identified them as the women they had seen in Dogtown Lane. It is a pretty clear case, the lawyer admitted. We know the date and the place where the missing witness was. But the thing is now to trace the movements of those women after they drove away from Dogtown Lane. Nevertheless, he considered that every discovery, even a small one, was important. Detectives would be started on the trail. Jessie and Amy rode back to Dogtown in the Norwoods car with the excited Henrietta after dinner, 
leaving her at the Foley's with the promise that they would see her soon again. And if those folks you know have any clothes to give me, said Henrietta longingly, I hope they'll be fashionable. Derry and Bird were planning another trip on the Marigold, and so had little time to give to the girls of Roselawn. But before the two young fellows left Roselawn again, they did the girls a favor that Amy and Jessie highly appreciated. It was done involuntarily, but was nevertheless esteemed. Mark Stratford drifted up the Bonwit Boulevard in his big and shiny car and halted it in front of the Norwood place to hail Derry and Bird. Here's the millionaire kid, called out Bird. Know him, girls? He's quite the fastest thing that lingers about old Yale. Mark Stratford. His family are the Stratford Electric Company. Oodles of money, but Mark is a patient soul. Patient? repeated Jessie wonderingly, as she and Amy accompanied the young fellows down the street. Sure, declared Bird. Most fellows would be impatient, burdened with so much money as Mark has, but not him. He is doing his little best to spend his share. Mark Stratford proved to be a very personable young man and did not look at all the sport. Jessie decided that Bird was probably fooling them about Mark. The young folks were talking like old friends in five minutes. In five minutes more, they had piled into the car for a ride. Mark's car burned up the road so fast that in half an hour, they came to Stratford Town, where the huge plant of the electric company lay, and on the border of which was the large Stratford estate. Jessie and Amy did not care anything about the beauties of the showplace of the county. While riding over, the girls had discussed one particular topic. And when Mark asked them where they wanted to go or what they preferred to see, Jessie spoke out. Oh, Mr. Stratford, take us to the plant and let us go into the radio broadcasting room. Amy and I are just longing to see how it is done. Oh, that, exclaimed Mark Stratford. We're crazy about radio, Mr. Stratford, agreed Amy. Some radio fiends, these two, said Derry. And he told his friend to what use the girls had already put Jessie's set for the benefit of the church bazaar. If you girls want to see how it's done, to be sure, I'll introduce you to the man in charge. Wait till we drive around there. Stratford was as good as his word. It was a time in the afternoon when the electric company's matinee concert was being broadcasted. They went up in the passenger elevator in the main building of the plant to a sort of glassed-in roof garden. There were several rooms or compartments with glass partitions, soundproof, and hung with curtain to cut off any echo. 
the young people could stare through the windows and see the performers in front of the broadcasting sets. The girls looked at each other and clung tightly to each other's hand. Oh, my, sighed Jessie. If we could only get a chance to sing here, whispered Amy in return. Oh, Mr. Blair, Mark said. Here are some friends of mine who are regular radio bugs. Let me introduce you to Miss Jessie Norwood and Miss Amy Drew. Mr. Blair? repeated Jessie, looking sideways at her friend. Mr. Blair? whispered Amy, who remembered the name as well as Jessie did. That is my name, young ladies, replied the superintendent, smiling. You don't know anything about a girl of our age named Blair, do you, Mr. Blair? Jessie asked hesitantly. I have no daughters, returned the superintendent, and the expression of his face changed so swiftly and so strangely that Jessie did not feel that she could make any further comment upon the thought that had jumped into her mind. After all, it seemed like sheer curiosity on her part to ask the man about his family. Just the same, she told Amy afterward when they were in the automobile once more, Blair is not such a common name, do you think? But of course, that Bertha Blair couldn't be anything to the superintendent of a broadcasting station. Oh, Jesse, what a wonderful program he had arranged for today. I am coming over tonight to listen in on that orchestral concert and hear Madame Elva sing. I would not miss it for anything. Suppose we could get a chance to help entertain, Jessie sighed. Not, of course, on the same program with such performers as these the Stratford people have, but... They happened to be traveling slowly, and Mark overheard this. He twisted around in his seat to say, Why didn't you ask Blair about it? You have no idea how many amateurs offer their services and some of them he uses. I'll say he does, grumbled Bird. Some of the singers and others I have listened in on have been awful. Well, I'll have you know that Jessie and I wouldn't sing if we couldn't sing well, Amy said with spirit. Sure, agreed Bird, grinning. Madam Elva wouldn't be a patch on you two girls singing the morning glories, buns, or the midnight rolls. Your taste in music is mighty poor, sure enough, Bird, commented Derry. Jessie sings all right. She's got a voice like a... Like a bird, I know, chuckled Alling. That is just the way I sing, like a bird. I've heard of a bird called a crow, put in Mark Stratford, smiling on the two girlfriends. Jessie thought he had a really nice smile. That is what your voice sounds like, Alling. You couldn't make the Glee Club in a hundred and forty years. Don't say a word, cried Bird. I'll be a long time past singing before the end of that term. Aha, here we are at Roselawn. They got out at the Norwood place and the girls insisted upon Mark coming in to afternoon tea, which Amy and Jessie poured on the porch. 
The boys liked Mark Stratford, and they did not believe that he was anywhere near as sporty as Bird had intimidated. The girls did not forget the concert they expected to enjoy that evening, but Derry and Bird left right after dinner for the moorings of the Marigold at City Island. They took Mark Stratford and some other college friends with them for a three days trip on the yacht. Amy ran over to the Norwood place before half past eight. The concert Mr. Blair had told them was to begin at nine. Jessie had learned a good deal about tuning in on the ether by this time, and there is no other part of radio knowledge more necessary if the operator would make full use of his set. The bedtime story is just concluded, Amy, Jessie said when her friend came in. Sit down. I am going to get that talk on hairpins and haircuts by that extremely funny newspaper man. What is his name? I don't know. What's in a name anyhow? Answered her friend lightly. Amy adjusted the earphones while her friend manipulated the slides on the tuning coil. They did not catch the first of the talk, but they heard considerable of it. Then something happened. Just what it was, Amy had no idea. She tore off the ear tabs and demanded, What are you doing, Jess? That doesn't sound like anything I have ever heard before. Is it static interference? Oh, it certainly is interference, admitted Jessie, trying to tune the set so as to get back upon the wave that had brought the funny talk about hairpins and haircuts. But it did not work. Jessie could not get in touch with the lecture. Instead, out of the ether came one word, over and over again. And that word, in a voice that Jessie was confident, must come from a woman or a girl. Help! 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 Over and over again it was repeated. Amy, who had put on her head harness again, snatched at her friend's arm. Listen, do you hear that? She cried in an odd tone. Jessie knew that by carefully moving the slides on her tuning coil, she could get into touch again with the talk to which she and Amy had been listening. But now the broadcasted cry for help seemed of so much more importance that she wanted to hear more of this air mystery. Help! The word came to their ears over and over again. Then, I am a prisoner. They brought me here and locked me in. There is a red barn and silo and two fallen trees. Help! Come and find me! For pity's sake, Jess Norwood, showed Amy. Do you hear that? I'm trying to, her friend replied. Shh! It must be a joke. Wait. They listened and heard it repeated, almost word for word. A red barn and a silo and two fallen trees. These points the strange voice insisted on with each repetition. I can't believe it, 
declared Amy. It is a girl. I am sure it is a girl. Oh, Amy, gasped Jessie. Suppose it should be the girl whom we saw with those two awful women. Bertha Blair? Yes, of course, I suppose that is awfully far-fetched. Wait, here it comes again, whispered Amy. Come and find me. Help! The red barn and the silo with the two fallen trees. How many times this was repeated, the girls did not know. Suddenly, something cluttered up the airways, some sort of interference, and the mystery of the ether went away. No matter what Jessie did to the tuning coil, she could not bring back that strangely broadcasted messages to their ears. What do you know about that? demanded Amy breathlessly. Why, why, murmured her friend, we don't know much of anything about it. Only, I am sure that it was a girl calling. It was a youthful voice. And I feel that it is Bertha Blair, exclaimed Amy. Oh, Jessie, we must do something for her. How can we? How can we find her? A red barn with a silo and two fallen trees. Think of it. Did you ever see a place like that when you have been riding about the country? I never did, said Jessie, shaking her head despondently. But there must be such a place. It surely is not a joke, said Amy, although at first she had thought it was a joke. And there is another thing to mark, Jess. What is that? The place where this girl is has a broadcasting station. You can't talk into a radio set like this. There has to be electric power and a generator and all that, such as Mark Stratford showed us there at Stratford Town. Of course. Then, don't you think, Jessie, the fact that it is a broadcasting plant where the girl is must narrow the inquiry a good deal? How clever you are, dear, declared Jessie. But a red barn with a silo and two fallen trees? Why, Amy, we don't know in which direction to look, whether to the north South, east, or west? No. I suppose... Oh, wait, Jess, cried the excited Amy. We don't really know where those women took the girl we saw. They drove out of the boulevard as fast as we could see them. But, do you remember? We met that Mrs. Bothwell again in the big French car that very evening. When we went to Parkville with Nell and the Brandons, Jessie said eagerly, I remember she passed us. You pointed her out to me. And she turned out of the very road we took to go to Parkville, said Amy with confidence. I believe that red barn with the silo must be over beyond Parkville. It might be so, admitted her friend thoughtfully. We have never been through that section of the state, but Chapman knows every road, I guess. Doesn't your father know the roads, too? But Daddy and Mumsy have gone to Aunt Anne's in New York, 
and will not be back tonight, Jessie explained. Anyhow, we couldn't go hunting around in the dark after this broadcasting station, whatever it is, Amy observed. Of course not, her friend agreed, taking the harness off her head. Come down to the telephone and I'll see if Chapman is in the garage. They ran downstairs, forgetting all about the radio concert they were to have heard, and Jessie called up the garage to which a private wire was strung. The chauffeur, who had served the Norwoods ever since they had had a car, answered Jessie's request quickly and appeared at the side door. Amy was just as eager as Jessie to cross-question the man about a red barn with a silo. He had to ask the girls to stop and begin all over again and, if you please, Miss Jessie, he added widely a grin, either let Miss Amy tell me or you tell me. I can't seem to get it right when you both talk. Oh, I am so silly, announced Amy. Go ahead, Jess, you tell him. So Jessie tried to put the case as plainly as possible. But from the look on Chapman's face, she knew that the chauffeur thought that this was rather a fantastic matter. Why, Chapman, she cried, you do not know much about the radio business, do you? Only what I have seen of it here, Miss Jessie. I heard the music over your wires, but I did not suppose that anybody could talk into the thing and other folks could hear like, oh, you don't understand. Jessie interrupted. No ordinary radio set broadcasts. It merely receives. As clearly as she could, she explained what sort of plant there must be from which the strange girl had sent out her cry for help. Of course, you understand the girl must have got a chance on the sly to speak into the broadcasting horn. Now, all the big broadcasting stations are registered with the government, and if secret ones are established, the government agents soon find them out. It might be, if the people who have this girl are the ones we think, they might have a plant for the sending out of information that is illegal. For instance, it might have some connection with racetrack gambling. One of the women is interested in racing, and the other in automobile contests. If the broadcasting plant is near a race course, now you give me an idea, Miss Jessie, said Chapman suddenly. I remember a stock farm over behind Parkville, where the barns are painted red, and there is a silo or two. Besides, it is near the Haramay race course, I could drive over there in the morning if you want to go. Mr. Norwood wouldn't mind, I am sure. Would you go, Amy? Jessie asked hesitantly. Sure, it's a chance, and I am awfully anxious now to find out what that mysterious voice means. <laughs> 